Please take your Bibles now, friends, and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you want to use the Bible on the back of the pew in front of you, you'll find what we're going to consider this morning on page 244. 244, and we'd love for you to take that Bible with you if you don't own a copy of your own. Recently, I've been reading a fascinating book by a sociologist named Gene Twingy, uh, who studies huge surveys of young adults to profile how each generation sees things and how they're different from generations before. He's written a bunch of books now, a bunch of articles, far more than I've been able to keep up with, but I've been working through a recent book that she wrote that sums up a lot of what she's found in her years in this career. It's a, a book called, appropriately enough, Generations. It spans the time from the silent generation all the way down through Gen, Gen Z, as the kids are called these days. One of the changes that resonated most with me as I, as, I, as I followed her description of it was a shift that she says happened sometime between Gen X, so people born, I forget the, the initial year, but sometime in the 60s up through basically 1980, Gen X and Gen Z and their attitudes toward what we would call sin and how to respond to it. 30 years ago when Gen X was coming into adulthood, all the momentum was on the side of what you might call moral relativism. Kind of anything goes. Whatever was the key word. Lighten up. You do you. What's the big deal? The key shows for those who were coming of age in the 1990s or coming into adulthood then were, were sitcoms, appropriately enough. Shows that made fun of everything. Shows like Friends where sex was famously compared to racquetball, something you do for recreation with your friends in your spare time. Or Seinfeld, you know, a show about everything where nothing matters very much and anything can be hilarious. That was Gen X. That's how they saw the world. But Gen Z has rediscovered moral outrage. Gen Z has come of age in the age of the Twitter mob. Now stand-up comics get canceled if they make fun of the wrong things. Now college campuses are more known for one wave of protest after another than for sexual promiscuity. Moral outrage is back with a vengeance. But these days, what matters most is that you end up on the right side of the pointed finger and not the wrong side. The moral outrage so common these days on campuses all over America and social media platforms and wherever else you happen to look, it is, it is fine. It is fueled by the difference between good and evil. But the key drive is to sort people into one or the other. Have you guys noticed this? One of the first steps toward Jesus is to accept that sin is serious and that sin is not somebody else's problem. It struck me as I was reading her description of Gen X and how they saw sin, Gen Z and how they interact with it, that Christianity stands in contrast to both postures. Sin is serious, a big thing, not a small thing. But the Bible won't let us describe sin as something someone else is guilty of. It's not out there. It's not among them. It's in here. It always starts in the heart and it lives in the heart of every person who's breathing. I don't know of a better place in all the Bible to see that perspective on sin 
than the story we're going to consider today from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. It is a truly stunning story. It's stunning because of the details, the ugliness of the sin that's described in it. It is stunning for the character who's doing the sinning. Israel's greatest hero is the chief villain in the Bible's most powerful description of what sin is like and what sin leads to. And this morning, to, to, to best unpack the, the power of this, of this description, I think what I'm going to do is just tell you the story and then think about what we can learn from it. Tell you the story of what David did and then consider what we can learn from it. To get into what David did, I'm going to pick up at the beginning of chapter 11 in 2 Samuel and, and go ahead and read the first scene in this story through verse 5. And I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is God's word. You can be seated. The note takers among you may want to hold off on that until we get to the section on what we can learn. But I am going to go ahead and tell you this story that I want to tell you unfolds in four parts. It begins with David seeing what he shouldn't. David sees what he shouldn't. Verse 1 opens the whole story on that subtle but ominous note. I wonder if you noticed it. This was the time of year when kings who lead their people, go out to war. But David, David stayed behind. David chose the security and the ease of Jerusalem while his men fought for the safety of his people. David is back home taking an afternoon nap on his couch. These are loaded details. And when David rises from his afternoon nap for a bit of fresh air and looks from his roof at the city spread out around him, he notices a beautiful woman bathing on a terrace or courtyard of a nearby house. David was in a position he should not have been in, and David sees something he should not see. What will this man, who has lived after God's own heart, do now? Movement number two in the story, David does what he wants. David does what he wants. He should have looked away immediately. He didn't. Then he should have stopped with what he had seen. 
Instead, he takes another step in her direction. He sends out for info. He learns that this woman has a name, Bathsheba. This woman has a father, Eliam. And this woman has a husband, Uriah the Hittite, a servant not from here, who serves David's kingdom by choice, by love and loyalty. This Hittite has made himself a citizen of David's kingdom. This should have stopped David cold. This is a human being he's looking at. She lives her life in a web of meaningful human connections. She is not available. But so what? She's looking pretty in the city of David. And he's king. Go get her. Verse 4 sums up what happened with a brutal efficiency. It's like the whole point is to highlight that this is a man with the power to take what he wants. There's nothing about the inner life of anyone involved, nothing about the motive, nothing about intent, just action. David sent, David took her, she came, he lay with her. It's as if the whole verse is meant to tell us David is a man with the power to do what he wants, doing exactly what he wants. He acts like he's in complete control. But his illusion of control, it comes crashing to the floor when Bathsheba sends a messenger with the only words that this woman speaks throughout this story. I am pregnant. Third movement in the story, David tries to cover up. Immediately, the scramble begins to cover up what he's done. It starts with a clever plan to deceive everybody. Look with me back at the text. I'm going to pick back up in verse 6. David sent word to Joab, his general, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. You know, laying it on thick. Just wanted to pull a, 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 an exemplary soldier off the line for a little R&R so that I can learn how things are going and so that he can get a, a well-deserved break. David is laying it on thick, but he's got a plan. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. See, David thinks Uriah will come home Go to his wife. Nine months later, everybody will assume the baby's his. No one will know. No one has to get hurt. David's thinking, how fortunate it is to be a king who can pull all these strings. But David has misjudged who he's dealing with in Uriah the Hittite. David might be willing to rest. David might be willing to pleasure himself while his army's off fighting battles. Uriah, he won't even think about it, not for a second. The contrast between Uriah's faithfulness and David's desperate deception is so powerful from here on. Pick back up in verse 9 with me. Uriah slept at the door of the king's house. Didn't even go to his house. He slept out there with all the servants of his lord, and he did not go down to his house. When they told Uriah and told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? This is crazy. Uriah said to David, 
The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. My Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? That's what would be crazy. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing, Uriah says. And David should have been stopped cold. David's heart should have been opened up on the table. David should have looked at this man being who he should be and known that enough is enough is enough. But all Uriah's faithfulness does to David is cause him to accelerate his plan. He gets Uriah drunk, thinking that'll overcome his hesitation. Verse 12, David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but did not go down to his house. Once again, David does not get his way. So he takes the final fateful step. He comes up with a plan to have Uriah killed. And he sends that plan to his general Joab by Uriah's own hand. Let me simply read to you what happens next. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling him all the news about the fighting, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why'd you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is an ominous summary of all that has happened in chapter 11. 
Behind the language translated in the ways I've just read stands a similar word used when David encourages Joab over what has happened and when our narrator sums up what the Lord sees. David sends word back to encourage Joab. He tells him, literally, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Meaning, it isn't evil in my eyes. Why should it bother you? And then the final sentence of the chapter, the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's the literal translation every time. David could not cover up what he did from the God who made him king. The one who made the eye sees all. And it doesn't matter whether Joab was displeased or whether David was displeased. It matters that this thing has displeased the Lord. And chapter 12 unfolds the terrible consequences of what David has done. Movement four in the story, David faces the consequences. It begins when the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to expose David to himself. He uses a parable to do it. Beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, read with me. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. That's all that's said about the rich man. He's defined by his possessions. But look how Nathan brings the poor man to life. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up. And it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who'd come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Took. The same word in Samuel's summary of how Israel's kings would treat them. All the way back in 1 Samuel 8. The same word used for what David has done to Bathsheba. But David is not getting the point yet. He hears this story and he's outraged. Verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And because he had no pity, he just walks right into it. David has more pity for this fictional poor man that he's never met, who doesn't even really exist, than he had for his own loyal servant whose wife he took for himself and whose life he had destroyed. And in verses 7 to 15, Nathan delivers the blow and names the awful consequences of what David has done. Back to the text. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man! Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly but I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And just as Nathan predicted, David's child falls sick, verse 16 and following, because the Lord afflicted him. David mourns over the child. He fasts and prays for mercy. But in the end, the child dies for the sins of his father. David and Bathsheba marry and have another son, Solomon, verses 24 and 25. And then the chapter rounds off with the capture of the city that was under siege at the beginning of the story. And so ends the story of what David did. What should we learn from it? The ultimate good guy in the storyline of the Bible is the chief villain in the Bible's deepest look into the nature of sin that you'll find anywhere. That is stunning, friends, and no accident. Because the Lord who made us, who loves us, whose rules tell us what is good for us, knows that we are not safer from sin than David was. Sin is universal. As David put it himself in Psalm 14, there is no one righteous, not one. Sin runs through every human heart. And for that reason, we got to pay attention to what this story teaches us, both about the nature of sin and about the God who sees our sin for what it is. What should we learn from this story? I want to give you four terrible truths about sin. And one glorious truth about God. Four terrible truths about sin. One glorious truth about God. First, let's look to the story. Let's pass back over it for four things we can pull out of it about the nature of sin that is our enemy. Number one, sin starts small and grows bigger. Sin starts small and grows bigger. This you need to know. The story unfolds as it does to help us see how grievous sin, how unspeakable evil 
can sprout out of the most subtle and innocent roots. David didn't just wake up one morning plotting to murder his most loyal subjects. He just woke up one afternoon from a nap. He just took a walk on his roof for some fresh air. He didn't start with murder. He started in the wrong place at the wrong time. He should have been out there leading his army. That's where kings belong. But he was home. And at every point in the story, from that point forward, he just takes the next step, then the next step, then the next step. It's a vivid illustration of what James says in James chapter 1, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I'm sure that you can see what this means. If you want to fight against sin, you need to start at the root You need to get upstream. You need to focus your battle far before the moment of decision. You know, when all the momentum is working against you, the challenge of making the right choice in a moment like that one is too great for you. You need to know your own weakness and know how sin operates on it and cut it off at the pass. Start upstream of where you're likely to fail. Keep yourself out of situations that might place you on a conveyor belt of desire that you won't be able to resist. So if you know that greed is a pressing struggle in your life right now, you need to act like you don't know Prime Day exists. When you see Black Friday ads start to roll your way, you need to not open them. You know, you know, a purpose of an ad like that is to create a desire you didn't already have. You have no idea what's on sale in those door busters. Translation, you don't need whatever it is. You didn't know to want it. But if you open those ads, knowing that greed is a struggle for you right now, you are asking for it. Is there anything sinful about opening an ad email or browsing whatever comes into your actual mail? Of course there's not. Of course it's not sinful just to open it. But that doesn't make it neutral. It can work for you or it can work against you in the battle with sin you know you're having right now. Cut it off at the pass. You struggle with envy? You know how envy works. It feeds on what comes in through your eyes. So don't put yourself in a position where you will see something that you will envy. Get off Instagram. Don't put yourself in a place where you have to say no over and over and over against a conveyor belt that is built to keep you from saying no. The whole thing built by masterminds who know how to manipulate what you see. And know how to pitch what you see exactly to what they already know you want. Because they have all of your history. Everything you've clicked on. Everything you've ever shown interest in. They're all out to get you. It's not neutral. So if that's an issue for you, just get off. Don't put yourself where you shouldn't be. Do you struggle with lust? If you struggle with lust, you need to find a line that you can draw for yourself that falls way before you have the option to click on something you shouldn't click on. Way before you have to turn off something you shouldn't be watching that took a bad turn. You might consider 
a modern day version of plucking out the eye or cutting off the arm as just getting rid of the smartphone altogether. Why put yourself in a position that you shouldn't be in where you have to say no over and over to what you don't have the power to resist? Sin starts small, but gets bigger. So cut it off at the pass. Terrible truth number two is that sin feeds on deception. One reason it starts small and grows so big is that along the way it feeds on deception. I mean, right on the surface of the story is David doing everything he can do more and more desperately to cover up what he'd done, to deceive all the people in his life so he could protect his own image and not be seen for what he was. But, but on an even deeper level, did you notice? David was deceived even by himself. He didn't see himself clearly. He didn't see the evil in the evil he was doing, not as it was. See, sin is not just specific things we do that we shouldn't do. The Bible, it, it is that. It is every time we put our own interests ahead of God's and ahead of the interests of our neighbor. That is sin. It is, it is action-oriented. But it is also a force, a force backed by powerful evil, a force that works on us even when we don't notice it. And when the Bible talks about this force, it often talks about it as a blinding effect on our hearts and minds. A kind of voluntary slavery that we submit to by choice and then get ruled by when there are no more choices to be noticed. You can see this especially in how David reacts to Nathan's parable. You can tell David still has a working conscience. He sees the evil selfishness of that rich man right away. He doesn't need to be prompted. His heart is on fire with a righteous anger, an anger like God has for situations like this one. But he doesn't see himself in that story until Nathan drops the hammer. Did you notice? Why didn't he see it along the way? Why was his conscience not pricked sooner? How did he become calloused? When he was the one doing the deed that he was right to hate when he heard the story. Because that's sin. That's just what it does. Sin feeds on deception. That's how it gets its life in our lives. That's what sin is doing to me and you right now. Not hypothetically, not maybe. It is happening right now. Even if you're a Christian with the spirit of God in you, bearing good fruit in your life, on this side of glory, sin dwells in you. And that sin wages war, that flesh against the spirit. And in its war, what it's doing in you right now is blinding you so that you don't see what's happening. So, if you know that's what sin does, how do you account for it? How do you account for the fact that you can't see yourself as you really are? That what you see when you look at you is what somebody's described like the carnival mirror. It's just, it's all distorted. Some things are too big and some things are too small. The whole thing is just a jumble of contradictions. If that's what you see when you look at you, what do you do? Well, you put yourself into a community full of Nathans. That's what you do. You need Nathan in your life. And you need to be willing to be Nathan in the lives of your friends. Nobody ever wants to be in on a scenario like this one here. On either end of it, it's no fun. 
To be confronted about sin or to do the confronting about sin. No one wants that. But sin feeds on deception. So the Bible commands this. It doesn't just suggest it, but commands us to love one another in this way from here to glory. Hebrews 3 says that we're supposed to exhort one another every day. Every day so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Where do you think the author of Hebrews got that idea from? Stories like this one. This is what sin does. So we need everyday care from our community. Or Galatians chapter 6. Paul says, if anybody's caught in a transgression, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. It's the image not of someone caught on camera. Big brother, gotcha. Ha! Now you've been found out. But, but caught as in a trap caught in a sticky web that they can't escape. If someone is caught in transgression, what do you do? You pay attention and you restore them in a spirit of gentleness because you love them. You don't want them caught. You want them free. And God's people are God's mechanism for setting his people free. Do your Christian friends know that they are invited to play this role in your life? You know, church membership is one way of asking a whole church to love you enough to pay this kind of attention to you and to follow through on what they see. It's a dangerous thing to be a Christian and not have people who know your name and know that they're responsible for you before God. But for any of us to get that care, all of us have to be willing to give it too. Do you love your friends enough to do this work in their lives. I guarantee you playing this role of Nathan in the lives of your friends won't cost you what it could have cost Nathan who knew that David just had his own loyal servant killed just to cover himself up, who knew that going into this confrontation and did it anyway. You playing this role is not likely to cost you much on the line of what it could have cost Nathan, but it could be used by God to deliver somebody you love from what they may not see. Are you willing? A third truth that we see about sin in this story of David is that sin wreaks havoc. Sin wreaks havoc. It's one reason this kind of care is so crucial to give to each other and to receive from each other. The, the destructive power of sin stretches out in all directions. The Bible is so clear about this from beginning to end. The first command in the garden comes with warnings of what will happen if they disobeyed because sin wreaks havoc. The law of Moses came back by all sorts of wonderful promises, but some harrowing curses too because sin wreaks havoc. And what the Bible says about sin's consequences is backed up all around us in our experience if we're willing to pay attention I mean, David, David's sin, it brings judgment on David, as we saw in Nathan's words and as future chapters are about to show in great detail. But it didn't stop with David, did it? Look at who all was, was caught up in this hurricane of destruction that he unleashed. What began as a private and secret sin with one woman... It spirals to touch so many more lives. Death is just everywhere around David. Wherever David had gone up to this point, good things happened. 
people flourished around him. The kingdom was given peace through him. But now, wherever David goes through this point, death follows him like the, like the rings of a hurricane. Uriah dies. All those valiant men around Uriah who had to die so that Uriah's death wouldn't make sense, wouldn't attract notice, those guys die too. Then, then David's own child dies. And, and in the chapters to come, more of his children are going to die, all flowing out of this sin that he did. That's what sin is like. It just ripples out far beyond what you can see or, or ever intend. Friends, God's rules to us, they're, they're not meant to hold us back from joy, but to protect us from misery because God sees what we can't see. He looks at all of it all at once and he knows what will happen. And so he says to us, don't do that. Stay in here. It's safe in here. Stay inside the bounds that I've given you. There is safety and blessing in these bounds. Don't go out there. It's dangerous out there. We can't see where these harmless acts may end up. These acts we convince ourselves hurt no one. But sin brings destruction everywhere. How many of you are suffering as adults because of neglect or abuse you experienced from your parents as children? How many countries full of precious people are devastated by the power trip of a single ruler who's got armies at his command? How many neighborhoods like mine, the one we're in right now, are plagued by dynamics of generational poverty that are fed layer by layer by sin. Sinful people build broken families. Sinful people create discriminatory laws. Sinful people build oppressive systems like slavery with legacies that live on way after the lives of those who built them. I look at the some of my first graders' best buddies at school, right across the street here at Warner, these precious children, so full of life, born into a web of forces they didn't ask for, did nothing to create, but will, will affect their lives at every single level from now as long as they live. Sin has consequences far beyond what anyone can see. And sin always feeds on the story that I ought to be able to do what I want and no one will get hurt if I do. This story here is, is meant to scare us straight. That's not true. It's not true. It's the oldest lie. Did God really say that you'll die if you eat that fruit? Come on. You will surely not die. It's not that big of a deal. It's fruit. Just eat it. Friends, do not believe that lie. It is a lie. And we ought to tremble with fear before the consequences of sin. We also ought to tremble before the one that we sin against. Because terrible truth number four that comes to us through this story is that sin scorns the Lord. When Nathan has finished his pronouncement of judgment, David confesses the truth. Verse 13, 
I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan had framed David's sin in the same way. In verse 9, he says, David despised the word of the Lord. In verse 10, the Lord says to David, you have despised me. And in verse 14, David says that by this deed, or Nathan says that by this deed, David has utterly scorned the Lord. But, but, but maybe the most bold statement of all comes in the psalm that David wrote after Nathan confronted him. Psalm 51 is David's prayer to God in the wake of this moment. And in that prayer, David prays to God against you and you only I have sinned. And we should be thinking, seriously? Against God only? I mean, in this one story, David breaks like half the Ten Commandments, almost literally half of them, against specific people with specific names. He coveted his neighbor's wife rather than being happy in their happiness. He wants what Uriah and Bathsheba have, and he takes it for himself. That started with coveting and sinning against him, breaking the Tenth Commandment. Once he did what he did, think of all the deception in his cover-up, all the lies he told through his actions. He broke the Ninth Commandment. He broke the seventh commandment when he committed adultery, sinning against Uriah and against Bathsheba. And then he broke the sixth commandment when he murdered Uriah to cover it all up. But when Nathan and the Lord confront David, they point to what he did underneath what he did. He despised and scorned the Lord. And that's what David saw too. I have sinned against you. Friends, that's, that, that is a powerful insight into the nature of sin right here. Before you can break any of the other commandments. You have to break the first one. Have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. David made a god out of this beautiful woman. That's why he coveted her. That's why he took her and committed adultery with her. He couldn't live without what God had not given him. David made a god out of his own reputation. That's why he broke the commands against lying and ultimately against murder to cover his own tracks. He, he idolized his own reputation. He couldn't let it fall. He had to keep that man-made God propped up on its shelf so that it wouldn't be destroyed. And overall, he made a God of himself, of his own desires. He despised the Lord and put himself on God's throne. He said, my life on my terms. If I want it, I get it. And that's what all of us do when we choose sin over what God has spoken to us. Every time, that's what we do. There is no victimless crime when we sin. It devastates the people around us. And beneath that, it scorns the one who made us and gave us everything that we have. Sin is our way of looking at God and saying, we want you gone. And to set that record straight, the wages of sin is death. In God's perfect justice, he gives us what we ask for. Those are the four terrible truths about sin that come out in this vivid story. And you've spent most of this morning sitting under that heavy flood. So much difficult truth to look at clearly. I wonder if you're feeling the weight of it all. 
If you are, whether you're feeling that weight for the very first time or you're a Christian who's weary from what seems like a life of one step forward and two steps back, David's story shows us more than simply the ugliness and the devastation of sin. It shows us one glorious truth about God. And this is where I leave you. God is merciful to sinners who repent. God is merciful to sinners who repent. David's story shows us how to repent of sin and what we can expect from God when we do. David just admits all of it. No words of deflection. No context to make himself look better. Never insists that he all, never meant for it all to happen. He doesn't try to explain his intent. He makes no excuses. Verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what's evil in your sight. You are justified in your words. You are blameless in your judgment. And friends, this has to be our move too. This is step one. I have sinned against you, Lord. Your ways are good. I rejected them. It's all true. And then he throws himself on the mercy of God. You see it most clearly in the words of Psalm 51. Purge me, he prays, and I shall be clean. Wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Please, in other words, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. That's all I've got to say. Be merciful. And friends, when you ask this of God, he says yes every time. Every single time, his answer is yes. God is merciful. The signs are all over this story. Every single one of them points to Jesus. Do you notice what Dathan said to David after he confessed? The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And in verse 24, when David and Bathsheba give birth to a new son and they call his name Solomon, which means peace, the Lord gives him a different name. Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. The Lord who promised his steadfast love would never leave David's house despite sin is following through on his promise. And of course, ultimately what this story points us to is David's greater son, Jesus. God's mercy to sinners like David and you and me shows up in the gift of his own son, because for the Lord to put away David's sin, somebody had to die. He had to lay it on somebody. God is holy. Sin has consequences. Somebody must die. But Jesus Christ is God's answer to the prayer of Psalm 51. Blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me. Hide your face from my sins. For God to say yes to those cries for mercy, he'd have to blot out the life of Jesus. He'd have to hide his face from Jesus. He'd have to cleanse sinners through the precious blood of Jesus that washes them clean. For sinners like David to live, David's greater son, God's own son, would have to die in his place and in ours. But friends, he came to do precisely that. Not willing to if it was necessary. He came 
to do that on purpose. When Jesus was getting a bunch of grief from the religious leaders about who he was hanging out with, tax collectors and sinners, notorious sinners like David, do you remember what he told them? Those who are well have no need of a doctor. But those who are sick, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is what I came for. It wasn't like he came for those who deserved the effort and along the way sometimes lumped in a few misfits who happened to cross his path in a good mood. No, his whole life and his purposeful death all hitting the target that he set for himself in the beginning. A rescue mission with notorious sinners in mind. Because God is merciful beyond belief. And you are hearing this right now, which means you're still alive. You have breath in your lungs. And as long as you have breath in your lungs, you can repent and know the mercy of this God. If you come to him, he will never turn you away. So come. Just come. Let's pray. Father, we ask you for the grace to believe that all of this is true. The depths of our sin and the greater depths of your mercy. And we ask you now to give us faith to embrace what you have done, to undo the effects of all that we have done. Protect us from pride, from self-defense, from any empty justifications we might throw out. And help us to be humbled, left falling only on the strong and certain rock of Christ. This is our prayer in his name. Amen.